Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcasting from Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back, and we're back with episode 90. And since episode 89 was about Batman, I thought it would be kind of fitting if we kept that kind of feeling going forward, at least for the next few episodes anyway. So episode 90, we're talking about Dark Knight Returns Part 1. And we're not talking about the uh, animated movie that came out. No, we're talking. We're going back to the original text. We're going back to the actual graphic novel. And while I was doing the research and rereading it for the said podcast, because originally it was meant to be all four stories, we'll just cut, cover all of it and talk about it all at once. But it was amidst the rereading of it, I realized, no, this needs to be a four-parter series and needs to be given the time and breath to it. And so I decided to do that, and my guest was gracious enough to not sign up for one, but for four episodes. And before I, I ramble on anymore and build the suspense who, who I'm speaking to, I'm speaking to a member of the Suicide Squadcast Network, uh, Scott from the Su- Suicide Squadcast. Scott, welcome to the show. Glad to be here, Timothy. It's fantastic. It's You, you were like, hey, you want to come on and talk about Dark Knight Returns? I was like, D- butter my biscuit and call me a... I'm here. I just love this book. I, I knew, like, what you, like... Because we had mentioned it on Twitter previously, if you're your fandom for this book and you showed me like the like the dior- the diorama of your fandom for this book specifically i was like oh and i thought i enjoyed this book it's and it's just... pretty strong it's pretty it's it, it's re- it's reached levels of ridiculousness how much i love this book i mean jeez i mean like like i like like the only way i could probably top that is because we had we also had kind of like almost a measuring contest of our fandom for Batman Mask of the Phantasm when the Blu-ray came out. And because that's when you were on uh, Lisa's I Love That Movie podcast. And that's how like the Twitter friendship began, began between her and I. And so we're just like, oh, oh, you have that? I have the VHS. Like, I have a poster of it. And I was like, and I threw it down. Like, I may get a tattoo of this just to see like how you would react to it. And both you guys were like, all right, Tim might be a little extreme there. <laughs> yeah no 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 nah, I, I that's 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 a bridge too far sir that's a bridge too far yeah I, i'm skinny <laughs> I, I, i'm well not skinny that, that that's a lie i'm just being a little white boy no no tats on no tats on these arms what can i say <laughs> it's all right i mean i was like like i i have like the kind of design for the batman like what the batman like tattoo i want on my like right shoulder or my right arm like i my arms need to be bigger first before i do that but before we digress even further into tangents let's jump into our topic we're talking about dark knight returns part one right now Scott, since you're the guest of the show, and I'll have you start first, when did you first get introduced to this book specifically? Oh, oh, so inappropriately. So inappropriately. <laughs> okay, it was 1989. Of course, that was the year that the Michael Keaton movie came out. That Christmas, 
my aunt gave me a leather bound. It was from Long Meadow Press. You can actually find this like on Amazon. It was a leather bound the, at the time. What was the complete Frank Miller Batman? So in this one leather bound edition with like a little ribbon bookmark attached to it, you had Batman Year One. Uh, this story that was the first artwork Frank Miller ever did for Batman called uh, Santa Claus Dead or Alive and The Dark Knight Returns. And it was all in this one leather-bound book. And I was seven. Um, there was no freaking way a seven-year-old should ever read this book. Uh, but my aunt didn't know that. She just saw, oh, it's Batman. So she bought me a Batman book. And I read Batman Year One. You know, there was Selena being a prostitute. You know, but nothing terrible. I mean, Year One is actually kind of appropriate. You know, the the Santa Claus Dead or Alive story, no problem. And then I got to the Dark Knight freaking Returns, <laughs> and I don't think I could pro you. I couldn't process this book as a seven year old. Uh, I didn't understand the art. I knew basically what was going on, but I'll tell you, by the time you get to book three and the Batarang is jutting out of Joker's eye socket, I had nightmares. I had nightmares. Like, I shut the book. Uh, I, I mean, I finished it, but I would shut the book, and I would put it on my dresser, and I never touched it until I was 30. I am not – and I'm not exaggerating. I read the book when I was seven years old. And then did not reread that book until I was 30 because it scared the hell out of me. I, I didn't understand it. And then I spent all those years, everyone tell me how wonderful this book was. And I didn't get it because my memory of this book was from the perspective of a scared out of his pants seven-year-old reading this book. And then when the animated movie came out, that kind of got the conversation going again. And I remember talking to the guy who owns my local comic book store and just kind of like, okay, t t tell me, what's the, what's the deal with this Dark Knight Returns? I read it. I don't really get why everyone loves it. It's like, it's like you know, like the greatest Batman story ever. What is it? And he kind of talked me through a little bit of it. Like, you know, you look, you got to think about what Frank Miller's kind of politics were and what he was thinking and this and that. And he basically was like, no, just give it, give it another try. And so when I was 30, I finally reread this book cover to cover because they had – like Comixology had like a 99-cent sale to get all four issues leading up to uh, the release of the Dark Knight Returns animated movie. And then my eyes were opened and I saw the light. I had like a spiritual experience. I was like, oh, I get it now. But it's also because I'm 30 and I understand what this book is trying to say. And it was incredible. And I use this as a story for my students to say, don't try to rush reading books you're not ready for. Because it will ruin the experience. Because you have to understand about the Cold War and socioeconomic commentary and how he's making fun of Everyone all along the political spectrum in this book. And I just didn't get it when I was seven. But then once I read it, when I was 30, 
I have read this book like every year for the last six years because it's become like an annual tradition now because I must consume this book every year and re and reread it and revisit it and find something else that I did not catch the last time I read it. And it happened today. I was rereading book one today and I'm still catching things. And that's what I think is great literature that you can reread it over and over again and still pull something else out of it. And little did the listeners know that he, after Scott had his revelation, <clears throat> he did cartwheels and backflips in a church with James Brown, and him and, <laughs> him and Elwood brought the band back together. Oh, I'm on a mission from God. <laughs> <laughs> we have 104 miles to Chicago. We have a full tank of gas, half a carton of cigarettes. It's dark. We're wearing sunglasses. Hit it. <laughs> and Carrie oh. Fisher is not here firing an AK-47 at us. No. <laughs> Amongst the myriad of other things she throws in, in their way. Oh, man. Uh, it's just a little tangent with, uh, of... Uh, it's Batman-related. Don't worry, people. I heard somebody took the audio, the music track of when uh, Jake and Elwood are going th driving through the mall and destroying it, and put that underneath that as a bed for the Tumblr chase of Batman Begins. Oh, my God. That's fantastic. And that's like I. That's my probably one of my favorite sequences of that movie, and that makes even a. It is like gut, the side, hurtingly funny. That moment with the tumbler going from rooftop to rooftop, destroying uh, GC GCPD police cars along the way, hilarious. Oh my god! So yeah, <sighs> so that's my experience. I was seven when I experienced this book. Why? Why did that have to be my first experience with this book? Oh my! I mean. I was lucky enough to experience it a little bit later than you is because I believe it was yeah, I'm trying to think of when it was at this point. Yes. It was probably after the success of the dark Knight, And I've been a fan of Batman since I was a little kid. I had watched the reruns of the 66 TV show. I had watched the Batman anime series and I, the, I consumed both the Burton and Schumacher movies. And I accept them all as their own, iterations of Batman. I think it's why it became, I, it allowed me to be so open-minded to numerous uh, permutations of Batman. And I'm like, all right, I want to get into Batman comics. And I heard there's something called graphic novels. And so I went online and I just kind of Googled the best Batman graphic novels. And it led me to a list by IGN.com that listed the top 25 best Batman stories in graphic novel form. And so I'm like, okay. And so I'm going through the list. And on the list it was, Things like Batman Long Halloween, Batman Venom, um, Nine Lies, which is pretty much a Dick Grayson story, but it's, it, Batman's tangent, tangentially involved with that. And I got to number one, and it listed The Dark Knight Returns as the as their number one. They're what they choose to believe they believe to be the best Batman story ever written. So I'm like, okay, might as well start with the best and see how everything kind of falls. And so I went to my first the first time I went to a comic book store is when I went to I. To get this, and I went to the, the store I still go to today, Fourth World Comics, here in Smith Smithtown, here on Long Island. And I walked in there for the first time, really going to a comic book store as a, as a real consumer because there used to be a comic book store in the local mall near me, but it since it had been turned into, oh, what the hell is it turned into? I think it was turned into a, it was turned into a movie store, and then eventually that was changed into I think it's an AT and T store nowadays, but. It was originally called Planet Comics, but when I went into Fourth World, I was just kind of this eyes were like saucers taking everything in. I'm like, oh wow, this 
there's action figures, there's banks, there's posters, there's T-shirts. I'm like, I'm like, I don't have enough to get everything here. I, I guess I have to be a little choosy. So I end up going in and just pick up the Dark Knight Returns, the trade paperback, the same one I still have in my hand now. And it was during the spring. I went home. It was, I believe it was on a weekend. So I'm like, all right. It must have been like early afternoon. I sat down in a lawn chair in my backyard, and I read it from cover to cover. And by the time I got to the end cover, the sun was just setting. And I realized, oh, okay, I understand why people kind of really appreciate this or or give it that much praise. But I really didn't. Like, I understand, like, yes, it was a very good story. But it wasn't until, like, rereading again for this podcast, like, okay, I can see why so people so reverential and, like, had such admiration for this book and it's just mind-blowing like every panel we could discuss so much about it and i just find it really fascinating and reason why i wanted to do the show in the first place so 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 you've read it how many so you've only read it like twice no i read it three times okay cover to cover but, but i picked it up and i've read like like I'll, sometimes i want to read one story and i'll just pick it up and i'll just read the, that one story or one part of the book but sit down and complete it like all the way to beginning to end with a purpose to read it from cover to cover three times. Oh, okay, okay. And so would you say that your appreciation for the book has grown every time you've read it? Because it sounds like you're not like like I'm like I I'm like the the Mormon knocking on the door going, Have have you heard about our Lord and Savior Batman? <laughs> you know? And I'm just kinda so are you are you kind of have you started kind of converting your way over this way or like, do you, you get it? Or are you still kind of like, I see it, but I'm just not there yet. No, I'm there, but I'm also blasting satanic music out my windows to keep you away from my house, <laughs> <laughs> which I, I have done. I have blasted Iron Maiden number of the beast. When I saw Jehovah's witnesses coming up and down uh, my street. Oh, you're a like, terrible would... person. Oh, I know. No, no, no. Like, I, I was blasting it anyway, but I saw them, so I just kind of cranked it a little bit just to see how they react, to see if they would persevere, knock on the door, but they turned around. I'm like, all right, I guess that's never had a never had any visitors since. The only time I've had visitors to the doors is like, all right, we're selling something. I'm like, ah, like I, like I, I'm not the owner of the house. Like, uh, my dad's out of town. I can't really answer for him. Yeah, I'm that jerk. Oh, you're uh, well. What can I say when people call me? One, I don't even answer any more things to caller ID, but it used to be as soon as I answered the phone and they mispronounced my name, it was like, click. I'm sorry. Someone who knows me knows how to pronounce my name. Thank you very much. Bye. That's the funny thing. Like, we don't, like, we still have a house number for the house and everything, but we don't have a landline hooked up to it. And so whenever I have to go into a store and they say, oh, do you have a, a phone number? I always give the house number. I'm like, nobody's going to really answer it. So I'll give, I'll give the house number. Ooh, that's, that's well, well played. Well played. Yeah. Oh, but the, the, man. So really I'm, bad. Oh, go on. So I'm kind of curious. Okay. So when, so like that first time when you weren't completely sold on it, but you were like, okay, but I understand why people appreciate it. I'm curious about like, what were your reservations? Like, what was it about you that just did not like, just capture you heart and soul at first that you've kind of had to let it sort of grow on you after subsequent readings? Because I don't think I had enough context of other Batman stories to bounce it off of. Oh, okay. So you, you, your knowledge of Batman was not that strong, so you just didn't understand how much this had either permeated the mythology or influenced the mythology from that point on. Yeah, I mean, there were there were other stories I've read since on, and like that I I appreciate, like I I like oh this writer gets Batman, or this writer is like okay, this is a very 
extreme take on Batman and like there you could you could argue like all right you you say Grant Morrison's Batman like especially in the JLA like he is writing bad god at that point where he is infallible he does get the drop on him somebody gets a drop on him every now and then whether it be Prometheus or like even sometimes the white or like the the takeover of the JLA by that by Lex Luthor and but then there are times where I see writers of Batman where it's like, oh, you have Scott Snyder's Batman where he is – it is – you'll get a science lesson and a history lesson through his books. Like he'll tie that into a certain kind of uh, of something that, that could be applied to the real world like uh, of like or a certain chemical or anything like that. Or, the, or then you have something – where you would have, like, I guess you have Denny O'Neill, which he is writing a very detective-based Batman, and he, or and you might get a international flavor to the stories, depending if he's writing if it was during the '70s or if writing in black and white, or when he just or like one of my favorite Batman comics is Batman Venom, where I think it's a very personal story and it's a very Bruce-centric story as well as it is a very Batman-centric story and how the role of venom which you could obviously you could just replace that with steroids and drug abuse and addiction and something that I want to comment on the show later on and so experiencing it and just kind of growing and seeing different kind of iterations even further since the first reading up until now that's how my appreciation for this book has grown leaps and bounds okay okay cuz i'll go ahead just so you could just so you know who you're dealing with here if I have to talk about my two favorite Batman writers, it's like Frank Miller one, Scott Snyder two. Like those are like those are the two that I hold up as in when I've read some Batman and I've just felt like I've had an experience reading Batman. It it has been Frank Miller and Scott Snyder. Like those two are my jam when it comes to my. You know when you talk about who's you no know, my Batman, that's who my Batman is. Frank Miller and Scott Snyder. Now, are you talking about in the comic book form or just in media overall? I'm talking about in comic book form. In okay. media overall, it's, it's Batman the Animated Series, no contest. I mean, Batman the Animated Series was most of my Batman knowledge sprung from Batman the Animated Series. And things in that series then prompted me to go off and read more in the comics. I mean... Batman the Animated Series hit me when I was 10 years old, and it is still with me today. I still read Batman comic books with Kevin Conroy's voice in my head, just like anyone around the age of their mid-30s did, or probably still does. So, you know, that's that's kind of like, if I'm talking about the 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 overall version of Batman that has had the biggest influence on me as a geek... It's Batman the Animated Series. But if I'm talking about reading Batman in comics, it's Frank Miller and Scott Snyder. Like, those are those are my two. Those are my pillars, you might say. All right, I'm going to put you on the spot. What's your favorite Scott Snyder Batman story? Oh, I, you know what? It seems so cliche to say at this point, but Court of Owls. I mean, the, the experience of reading those first 11 issues of the New 52 run was just, uh, I had just gotten back into collecting comic books, like, weekly. Like, actually, not just got back. I just got back to collecting comics, but it was the first time, like, I was going to the comic book store every week to pick up the new books on Wednesday. And so, and I, I would buy every issue of DC Comics that came out. But when it was a week that Batman came out, when Scott Snyder's Batman came out, no, that was an immediate... 
everything gets shoved to the side that night. I had to read my Scott Snyder Batman and reading that Court of Owls arc, especially the issue where Batman's in the labyrinth and he's drugged and you had to like turn the book around to continue reading. Upside down. Yes. Oh, it was like sideways, upside down. And I was just like, you, you magnificent bastards, you've done it. It's just like that experience of, oh, my God, you've done something incredible here. So and that is not to and that is not to diminish anything else that Scott Snyder wrote. I mean, Scott Snyder's run is the one that like I bought every individual issue. And then I still went out and bought the hardcover trade paper, uh, the hardcover trade when it came out. Because it was like, I've read the issue, and now I will never touch this issue again, and I will have the nice, pretty hardcovers. And so I have an entire hardcover Scott Snyder collection, his entire New 52 Batman run, his um, all-star Batman run with Rebirth. Like, I I have now, I, I, I belong to Snyder. Like, uh, of current comic book writers, a Snyder book is something that becomes an instant, give me, give me, every, give me everything you got. And this is where I tell you a story that you're going to hate me for. I'm, I'm not surprised. I usually hate most people. So, okay, uh, go ahead and tell me. He lives 25 minutes away from me. I'm going to, I'm going. You know what I need to do? I have a copy of his short story collection, Voodoo Heart. I have like a first printing. I need to send that to you to get him to sign it and send it back to me. Because, <laughs> because that's because before he wrote comics, he actually wrote a collection of short stories that I actually went online and found a first edition on eBay. To buy, and now just I have to wait for the day that I can meet him so he can autograph it for me. That's you know, that in my first print of Batman number one, I mean, it's like I I will just walk up to him and go, yes sir, please sign sir. It's so funny because the store I mentioned, Fourth World Comics, that's the store he does his signings at for the most part. Oh, I really do hate you with every fiber of my being right I, now. I've got, I, I got um. Oh, was it? I have, I have his. Yeah, I have a signature on my trade paperback of Court of Owls. Um, was it the Gates of uh, was it? Gates of Gotham? It is, it is Gates. Him and Kyle. I, I need to get Kyle Higgins' uh, signature with it. I'm like, I need to have their both their names on there because I think also I just really like Kyle Higgins' run, especially on Nightwing. Oh, his no, his run Nightwing is solid. Absolutely. And a lot of people crap on it. I, I don't get it. I mean, I understand, yeah, he changed the, the costume changed. Like it, you really that's, get to get that's not his that's not his responsibility. <laughs> no. No. And his it, his run on Nightwing is solid, and he did a Batman Beyond 2.0 run that was fantastic. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. It, that's how I bought digital comics. That, like that was the first run. Like, I, I think it's appropriate to buy this digitally first. Oh man, that was good. And I, but I think what Scott Snyder and Kyle Higgins have in common that I love is that you can tell they're like our age, uh, because you can tell from what they're reading, they're referencing things that we know. Like in Scott Snyder's run, you can see the Dark Knight Returns references, but you can also see like the Batman the Animated Series references that he's kind of working in to make canon. And I think that's why Frank Miller and Scott Snyder are one of my favorites because like Frank Miller kind of like introduced a version of Batman that I feel like has really in- influenced the Batman that the Batman that came afterward. And then Scott Snyder is like is like taking all those versions of all that stuff about Batman that I love, Batman the animated series and Frank Miller and just all this other stuff. And now he's creating the a Batman now that 
is like great for my 30 something self to start enjoying with a nice little dash of nostalgia thrown in for all the stuff that I loved as a kid. And it's never for an arbitrary reason. It's never like wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Hey, remember this? It's always, it's always natural and part of a story rather than just, oh, let's shoehorn this in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's 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 wonderful. And and, and people tell and, and when people complain to me that like reading reading a Scott Snyder book is like, oh my god, it's like reading a novel. I was like, I know, isn't it wonderful? I actually bought words to read. You know, it's and and that's and kind of steering the shit back to what we're here for in the first place. That's what I love about the Dark Knight Returns is that Frank Miller had complete and utter creative control over this book. Because uh, have you seen have you seen the documentary that's on the deluxe edition of the Dark Knight Returns animated movie? I have not. Like, it, I actually broke out the the Blu-ray for like I was going to watch it for like this review. We may end up talking about it near the end, but when we get to the the fourth show, I have not watched the documentary. Okay, because this was the thing is like I remember you know they came out with part one, then part two, and then a few months later they edited them together into one movie. And a lot of people were like, oh, double dipping, this and that. And screw it. Double dip all you want. I'm going to buy it. And so I, I bought it. But there was this documentary. And it is basically like an hour-long interview with Frank Miller. All about the history of the making of this book. And he, because, you know, he was working for Marvel at the time. And he was kicking ass on Daredevil, which... I bought all the omnibuses for that because I mean it's Frank Miller. I mean basically it's like Frank Miller wrote it. I'm going to buy it. I don't care. I don't care about the quality. I'm going to get it. And so to to and, dare, and that Daredevil run, which has heavily influenced the Netflix series, um, was making a splash. And that's when DC was like, um, "You want to come over and play in our playground, um, Frank? You want to come over here?" And I think it was Jeanette Kahn was the president of DC Comics at the time. And she was like, what do you want? You, you can have anything. And he was like, I want to write Batman. And he was the one who came up with the idea of printing it in the prestige format. I think that's actually like one of the first prestige format books to come out was, was the Dark Knight Returns series. And he basically said, leave me alone. Let me do my thing. And so what I think I love about this book is that it is like a true artist's um, like take on it because basically they just let him do whatever. And so his pencils, his writing, Lynn Verley's, um, you know, the way she colored this book, which was so revolutionary at the time. And you can just tell reading this, it's like, can you imagine anyone else being able to write and draw this? And I think I think the fact that he did write it and draw it. And back when he was younger, so his art is a little bit like it hasn't. I mean, I still appreciate his art now, but even I will admit his art's kind of gone off the deep end uh, present. But back in the 80s when he was really kind of in his fine form, but he was able to tell a story that he wanted to tell. And just the depth of it and the social commentary and the political commentary and, you know, what he had to say about Batman. And I think that's what a lot of people don't like about this book is Batman's a psychotic in this book. And that's Frank Miller's point is he's a man who dresses up like a bat and goes fight crime. He has to be off his rocker. And I th really appreciated that about this book. And it was before, I guess we're kind of jumping a little bit, like, because the end of it is like it is a deconstruction of Batman. It's a deconstruction of comic books. 
with this. And, of course, that's why this and Alan Moore's Watchmen are constantly brought up as the fact as as deconstructions of the comic book genre and metafiction of it. I also think martial law doesn't get enough love and it does a very similar thing. Maybe not as you may like say it's a lot more straightforward and maybe not as eloquent as Watchmen, but I think martial law is really freaking good. And it's so funny, like how many people like it's curious that like, yeah, that Frank Miller was killing it with Marvel and they DC made him an offer. They can't refuse. I mean, kind of like how Bendis is right now coming over to DC. Oh yeah. Comics. That's a sweet deal by the way. Yeah. And I'm just curious. I'm, I am fascinated what he's going to be doing with all the stuff that he has on his plate, which it seems to be mind meddling, mind melting at this point. Oh, he's been doing it in Marvel for years. I think that's just the way he works. <sighs> Just ridiculous. Oh, I know. Uh, to be that talented, it just eats me up inside. That, that's why it's like, like, well, like part of like one of my mantra things is to accomplish something creative every day. And it's like, I'm like, it's like, all right, like this is what like consider like doing this podcast would be considered. If I also did writing today, and I'm like, all right, and I'm like, all right, and I got some new like equipment for my camera. I'm like, all right, test that out. I'm like, okay, I think I get to sleep tonight and I can be happy tomorrow. I'm like, all right, I'm going to work and then I'm going to a, a, a hockey game. I'm like. When am I going to accomplish something creative? I'm like, all right, I got to find something to do that during the day. And it's kind of, I, I presume writers or just creative people in general have that kind of mantra. Like, I must, like, I believe, I may be mistaken, Stephen King, like, writes 60 pages a day, regardless of what story it is. So, like, he has to hit that kind of, that page count by the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. I, I think I think Neil Gaiman's kind of like that sometimes, too. Uh, another Another excellent comic book writer from this period. That, you know, it's just, it, it just, the 80s were an incredible time for comics because they were basic, it was, it was in these, in the mid to late 80s, especially with the British invasion of DC Comics through Vertigo, where it was like, no, comic books aren't just for kids. You know, the Bronze Age has started to, you know, you had Denny O'Neill and Neil Adams trying to explore some more adult things like Batman and then when Green Lantern became Green Lantern Green Arrow. But it was like in the eighties where it was like, no, comic books can be literature. You know, and then and to think that literally within four months of each other, we had issue one of Dark Knight Returns and issue one of Watchmen in the same year. Four months from each I mean, the last issue of Dark Knight Returns came out the same month that issue one of Watchmen came out. That blows my mind. And then, and then you got Neil Gaiman coming out with Sandman, this like within within like the same span of time, and it's just, it's amazing. But they took comic books and was like, no, this isn't just escapism for children. This is literature, and what we just need to do is explore how can we use this as a medium to do what people do in novels, but exercise what you can only be done in comic books because of the visual nature of them oh totally it's funny that you bring up gaming and such and the british invasion i'm at work the other night and i'm sitting there like waiting for uh, my, my second job my editing job i'm waiting for the cavaliers game to come back from uh halftime and i have i have alan moore i trade paperback of alan moore swamp things i'm just getting into that oh the saga so the saga the saga of swamp thing oh yeah yes yeah and so, and then my buddy Tommy is to the right, and another editor, Adam, is to my left, and we're all sitting in a row, and we're all talking about comics. And I knew Tommy was a comic fan. I didn't know Adam was. So, and we all went to Alan Moore, 
Grant Morrison and Neil Gaiman. So we all talked about Doom Patrol. We all talked about Sandman. We talked about Animal Man. And so, like, 15 minutes just flew by. And I'm like, ah. And it kind of makes me wish I could just go back in time and just be able to pick up first issues of this, as well as, like, John Ostrander's run on Suicide Squad, uh, J.M.D. Mateus on the Justice League International, and a myriad of other books that was going on at the time. And I actually have a question for you. Since this was done in the prestige format, was this outside of Detective Com- Was this out of the Detective Comics line? Was it just simply Dark Knight Returns one, two, three, and four? Well, it, well, the thing was was that each book has its own title. It wasn't even called the Dark Knight Returns total. Dark Knight Returns is just the name of the first issue because it's Dark Knight Returns, Dark Knight Triumphant, Hunt the Dark Knight, and the Dark Knight Falls. Or something. So, like each, it was its own. It was Elseworlds before Elseworlds existed. Like it is an Elseworld story, just before that became a label for DC Comics. So it, unlike Batman Year One, which was just four regular issues of the Batman, the Batman series post Crisis. This was a completely separate, it was an event all into itself. And, and it's also interesting, and this comes up in the first book, is that while they don't come out and say it, they basically hint that Jason Todd gets killed, and then that's why Batman retired. Like, it, it's stated a couple of different times that Bruce quit because of Jason. Which is interesting because if you go back and look at the chronology, Dark Knight Returns was written and published before Death in the Family. So Frank Miller predicted the death of Jason Todd. Now, do you say predicted or do you think that was kicking around the offices of DC after the crisis, what they were going to do with Jason Todd and what they what their initial plans were? Because, of course, pre-crisis Jason and post-crisis Jason are two, Com- different two completely different things. Right. Pre-crisis Jason is basically a Dick Grayson clone. Um, uh, post-crisis Jason was the street punk one that we're all familiar with. But, you know, this book came out in 1986, which was also when Crisis on Infinite Earths was happening. And Jason Todd didn't get killed until, like, 88. So it's it, there's a good two years between the publication of The Dark Knight Returns and... When death in the family eventually happened, I just think that that was very prescient of Frank Miller to say, "What would cause Batman to quit? Well, what if he lost a Robin?" And I that's that's my own personal head canon because I've never heard anyone like actually like I never heard Frank Miller comment on this or not. But which is also interesting that when when DK three was coming out and they actually went back and wrote that horribly underrated one-shot Batman The Last Crusade, which is basically Frank Miller's version of Death in the Family. Um, It's just incredible to think he thought of that first. He thought of a Robin dying, but in this case, Batman actually quits because of it. And I just, I thought that was incredible to think about. And that's one of those things that I didn't get until I was older after knowing about Jason Todd dying and then doing the timeline to realize, wow, this happened like two years before it happened in like the mainstream comics. And it's like you, it's something that I did not realize it was such a 
monumental notion that a Robin would die on Batman's uh, watch. And it was kind of like, oh, I guess that, that Robin's kind of dead. And it's kind of just like, here it is. And here it goes. Like, all right, whatever. And not realizing, oh, wait, that is earth shattering. And that would change Batman's dynamic. And he would be willing to let the obsession be subsided because of what his, the loss he has. But as the book starts, we have a 55-year-old Bruce Wayne behind the wheel of a Formula One car racing, pretty much like the Grand Prix in Gotham City. Yeah, that's that's my take. Which you know what a little a little Easter egg I discovered today is he he's talking to a Carol over his headset, and then at the very bottom you realize that the car was built by Ferris, and it's like oh he's talking to Carol Ferris. That is awesome. Green Lantern reference on the first page. I never put that together. I put, huh. it, I put it together today. And if this was not the first time I put it together, I had forgotten that little nugget, and I just rediscovered it today. But, yeah, on the very first panel, he says, Bruce, it says, Bruce, this is Carol. You're going too fast. And then you jump to the very bottom row of, of panels, and it says, uh, spectacular finish to the Newman elimination as the Ferris 6000 pinwheeled across the finish line. Huh. That's amazing. I know, isn't it? <laughs> but it's it's like such like like they always say like God is in the details when it comes to writing, and I love how the theme is stated for this this entire saga within the first page. Oh yeah. And if and it's the, it's the famous line like this would be a good death but not good enough. And what what and like you know Batman's going to come back obviously, but you know Bruce is going to come out of retirement from this because he, like the second panel, he immediately takes control of his life. He comes, he decides to turn off autopilot in a violent fashion. And it's like, that's how he's changing the course of his destiny. And that's how you know the, the, the rest of the story that comes afterwards is inevitable. But I think it's also an interesting take on Batman going, you're talking about a guy who for... You know, he's been retired for 10 years. We're going to assume he was operating for probably about, if he was in his 40s when he retired, you know, normally we say that he's kind of started being Batman, you know, like what, mid-20s, early 30s. So you're talking about a guy who was probably Batman for um, anywhere from 10 to 20 years before he retired. You can imagine in his retirement that he just must be bored off his ass. And that I just see this as like thrill-seeking, like... Like, he is an adrenaline junkie, and he has to get that fixed in some way. So he's driving fast cars, because after you've driven the Batmobile, how do you not? And, and something like that. And and the just the reckless abandonment of, I don't even give a crap about my life. I could crash this car and die in fiery flames. And, you know, like you said, this would be a good death, but not good enough. But it's almost like, but I'd settle for this if I had to. Right. It wasn't like, if it was almost like it's, his escape is, seems like it's almost instinctive. Like, it's his just being Batman. It's like, all right, that's how he was able to manage to get out of the crash in the first place. Because he had such a skill set as Batman for so long, even at his age, he was still able to escape a crash. Well, and also, this is what also, at the bottom of this first page, what I also think is interesting is that it also introduces the skill scathing commentary on the media that occurs throughout this entire book because that's when you get the television shaped panels at the at the bottom and you even get that what i think is frank miller's 
I mean, just roasting of the media because that that same panel ends with a flaming coffin for Bruce Wayne. Or so everyone thought. Turns out the millionaire bailed out the last second. Surfered only superficial burns Lola. It's the way the news, like this idea of what cable news does, which is they tantalize you with something and then cut away and then, you know, completely turn the tables on you. And then... And then the next line is them talking about something like, well, who could think about it with this weather? You know, and, and then going to that completely superficial, innocuous comment. And within the last three panels of this first page, Frank Miller's already given you that flavor of, this is some crap I've got to say about the way the media is. Which I think is was very much influencing on the way the media was portrayed in Batman v Superman, if I can go ahead and throw that out there. Oh, for sure. And even like a, a piece of pop culture history or a piece of pop culture, I should say, more recent in, 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 in comparatively to the release of this, I think RoboCop owes a lot. To oh, yeah. I'm so owes glad owes you so said that. Yes. I'd buy that for a dollar. Oh. Oh. And yeah, because like we have the the. The, the the plastered on grins and despite the horrendous things they're reporting on and the fact that at one point Robocop punches through a wall and stops a, a guy who has a hostage. I'm like, yeah, that is that is so Frank Miller Dark Knight Returns right there. And the, even to the point that you have Frank Miller write Robocop 2 and yet somehow that's is mess. It is. Ah, I, I have such conflicted feelings of Robocop 2 because. Oh, no, 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 no. you do realize that the studio totally took that away from him and completely rewrote it. Yes. Have you read the comic book where it's like, here's what my original script was? No, because I've heard such mixed things about that. I'm nervous about it. Oh, no, don't be nervous. Don't be nervous. Um, There's a a weaker one that's like what RoboCop 3 would have been. But no, check out... I, I, th- I think Boom Studios like republished it, but no. Check out that comic book that's basically, this is what F- RoboCop 2 would have been. Oh, no, it's worth your time. All right, then, because Robo- the first RoboCop's in my top ten favorite movies of all time. Like, I constantly, like, watch that, and, like, even to the point, like, because like, I, my listeners know that I am a filmmaker, and one of the things I'm going to do going forward is that, Watch my favorite movies and write down shot for shot. Why does this shot work? Why does this scene work? And because like, I, I love studying the cinematography, especially of people like Paul Verhoeven, Steven Spielberg, and John Carpenter. It's just like how they use blocking, how is lighting using that, what kind of lenses they're using, etc. Anyway, back to Dark Knight Returns, and it's saying like it's 97 degrees in Gotham City, and you kind you could. Plug in the fact that, yeah, maybe Gotham City is standing up in New York at this point. I was in New York City during the heat wave last summer, and I'm like, oh, it is unbearable. And I can only imagine what it's like happening at this time and then all the violent crimes that are happening. And then we hear the news that that Commissioner Gordon is stepping down, but he has he has four weeks left, and he's trying to his damnedest to stop the mutants. I know, which is interesting because you hear about the mutants – but I think Frank Miller does an amazing thing. You don't even know what they look like. Like, you hear about this gang, and you're like, okay, who are they? Because the news isn't showing you. The news is just reporting all the awful things they're doing, but also reporting it in a way that's like, I- I'm sorry, when your first news story is the fact that you've got three nuns brutally slain, and it's just like, oh, and that's just one, like, that's all you get. And then it's like, and eh, moving on to the next story. 
which once again is just, is just this this roasting of media that's like here's a horrible thing and here's a horrible thing and here's a horrible thing and we're just going to keep on talking on with smiles on our faces and talking about how well it must be this crazy weather that's causing it good just that was the thing that like when i was 30 in reading this book i was just like damn frank you knew what you were talking about didn't you <laughs> even to the point like like after rereading it and just i happened just to sit down and watch the news with my dad and i'm like oh my god frank was right and it's only gotten worse the senseless the 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 sensationalizing of i don't know if that's a word it is of the news it, 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 okay. is, it is a word you're good i just wanted the correct pronunciation there oh you're fine you're fine but okay. but yeah it's like i don't even know if it's gotten worse it's just like wow you've actually reached the point of what the satirists you know said you were going to become it's it, it, it it's amazing it, it's sad but it's amazing, and then it's like, but which I think is like reading the book now. I'm not sure if people get the fact that it was it was trending this way, but it hadn't quite gotten this far yet. And now you watch the news, and it's like, damn, we're there, we're, we're there. Oh, and 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 the way that translates so well in the animated movie too. It's like, wow, no, they kept that in there too. And it was, and, and like you said, it may, just makes you think of RoboCop if you've seen the original. Which didn't that come out in like '87? Yes. Ah, oh, wow. So, so once again, Dark Knight came first. Yeah, and he can kind of tell, like with uh, Ed Newmyer, the co-writer of RoboCop, like he has like a kind of a comic book style of writing because it definitely influenced this, and it definitely influenced another um collaboration they that Paul Verhoeven and Ed Newmeyer did in Starship Troopers because they use the same kind of satire in that. Oh yeah they like do Robocop. Oh yeah they do. Oh man. Which by the way I I um uh, I, I watched that with like the the MK uh, the MK uh and this is the uh, the Mystery Science Theater three thousand guys. That's a fun movie to watch with commentary. Oh my I saw that in theaters. Oh, oh. That is the only, fun. The only one I've ever done in theaters is I, I watched their take on the room. Riff Tracks take on the room. Oh, I need to see that. To oh, it, it is. Because I, mean, I already made fun of the room to begin with, and I found it to be like unintentionally hilarious. However, but with them, it's even funnier. I mean, tears rolling down my cheeks in laughter. Oh, man. <laughs> Well, and then we go to the next page, and I love this fact that, like, Gordon and Bruce are having a drink, uh, and you get that – you finally kind of get that idea of, yeah, Gordon knows who Bruce is. You know, it's we're, – we're past that point now. We totally – the masks are off. We know who each other are now, which I feel like Frank carried over into Batman Year One, which came out, like, the year after this, because you get that great scene at the end of Batman Year One. It was like – Thanks for saving my son. Can't see a damn thing without my glasses. And 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 kind of answering that question of Gordon knows who Batman is. Let's let's not let's not fool ourselves. He knows who he is. And this scene, and this is the first time we get that mention of Bruce hasn't talked to Dick in what it says seven years. He mentions something about how sorry what happened to Jason. So this is where we start to get that idea of. One Robin's not talking to him, and the other Robin's probably dead, based on the conversation they're having. Oh, totally. And I love how the fact that where Gordon kind of calls him, kind of 
po- pokes fun at the facade of Bruce Wayne before he retired. They, oh yeah, that you were drinking uh, ginger ale, pretending to be champagne, and now that you've kind of become a minor alcoholic in your old age. And, minor? And, <laughs> I think you're being generous. I was being kind there. I was going to wait till uh, Alfred's line when he really calls him out on the fact. Oh boy, his, doesn't he though? Mm-hmm. Um, but there's the, the one image, the, the the giant panel at the bottom of the page is the one panel like from this first book has always stuck out with me. Oh, it's yes. always stayed with me. Yo, and like he's the man walking amongst gray, especially with that guy with the "We Are Damned" sign, which totally is like the "End Is Nigh" sign from Watchmen. I'm sorry. Yes, I'm just. I know. I'm just imagining kind of like a, like Simpsons did it kind of moment here. Simpsons did it. Miller did it. Uh, first here with uh with like with um with between Dark Knight Returns and Watchmen, and then of course we end up with in Crime Alley and talking and as Bruce remembers what happened to his parents, and then we're introduced to the mutants for the first time. Kind of though, because they're they're totally inked in shadow, and the only thing you get is like the weird goggles they wear. You get no other detail at this point in the book, but. I also loved, and and once again, more things I'm picking up every time, but the the captions that have the gray coloring around them is the first indications that the voice of Batman is emerging from Bruce's subconscious because you're having to keep track of all the different voices going on this page because you've got the inner monologue that is Bruce. You've got the mutants talking to him. But then you also have the gray captions, which I always interpret as there's Bruce's inner monologue, and then there's Batman's inner monologue, and the idea introducing the idea of the fact that Bruce really does have a psychosis. Like Batman is like a mental disease he has. Like it's a separate personality. And for some reason, it reminds me of a Batman Beyond episode when a Shriek messing with Bruce Wayne and saying, "Bruce, Bruce, kill yourself." And at the end, they had the revelation where it's like. Like, yeah, he keep calling me Bruce. That's how I know I wasn't crazy. Like, you got to give me more than that. Like, well, I, he calls me Bruce. I don't call myself in my subconscious. What do you call yourself? Terry McGinnis asking. Bruce is giving that look. That like, look, that oh. smile. Yeah, yeah. I love that scene. Oh, yeah. And 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 this is the one I've heard the – I've heard arguments either way, but I will completely admit that the animated movie, the I missed the internal monologue. I mean, I know why it wasn't there, but that's what I love about going back and reading the book is this internal monologue. This is what makes this comic book, this graphic novel, feel like an actual novel because that's how novels work. Being able to get into the inner life of the character because they're basically narrating their own story. And which I've always wondered, like you mentioned before, when you read Batman comics, you hear Kevin Conroy's voice. Do you hear his voice with this? No, I don't. And I don't even hear Peter Weller's voice because that voice, while it was okay, it never really jived with me uh, as a Batman voice. Uh, I don't don't have a voice particularly that – I hear with this. Probably it's just it's just some old just some old grouchy like Clint Eastwood voice is kind of what I hear when I read this uh when I read this book. It's funny because I hear Kevin Conroy's voice whenever I read a Batman comic except this. What do you yeah, hear? I hear Peter Weller. You do hear Peter Weller, okay. Yeah. And there's only 
and I enjoy his performance in that. I think there's only one line of dialogue in the anime movie that I really have issue with. I just don't, I just don't like the pacing of it. It's when Batman and Robin have discovered um, Selina Kyle still alive and Captain Yendel bust in and they both, Batman and Robin jump out the window and land on the hand glider. And Batman says, good soldier, good soldier. But, like, because how he reads is, like, good soldier, good soldier. I'm like, all right, you read that, like, Robocop. That's supposed to be a somewhat comforting line, even from Batman. I think it, maybe there's a little more motion behind it, or there's a pause between the delivery of that line. Like, good soldier, good soldier. Like, something to, like, to comfort her. I don't know. For some reason, in that movie, it is, it's really irksome. It's, like, the only plot-line dialogue in that movie that I, I find kind of bothersome. I got you. Which I think it's interesting here because the mutants want to kill Bruce, but it, I, it, it's interesting that they say he's into it, and thus it's not going to be fun. So they so they leave him alone, and you and he kind of breaks down there at the lamppost at Crime Alley, and you almost wonder did he want them to like once again kind of like enough. This would be a good enough death. Like, come on, you punks, just do it already. And I, I just don't know. I mean, it's Bruce is going through so many emotions at this part of the book before he even becomes Batman that I'm trying to understand. And you know, even if you read the internal monologue, you know, he's still just talking about Joe Chill and how these mutants are. On a whole nother level. Like he talks about how Joe Chill, he was, his finger was trembling when he held the gun. Like he really didn't want to shoot his parents. It, it's that classic thing of it was kind of an accident that he actually killed the Waynes. He, he just wanted the money. He didn't really want to kill him. And that's just kind of what happened. And yet he's talking about how these mutants are, they're, they're this whole nother breed of criminal who they don't have that remorse. So it's like they have that sociopathy. Like they are, they are into it, which I also think, you know, if you're talking about New York in the seventies and really how that influences Frank Miller's sort of worldview and the world and the way that he's depicted, especially Gotham, you know, the idea of these, the mutants being this idea of these, these youth gangs and how even from a young age, you're seeing kind of like this, this soulless criminal, even in someone so young, I think is an interesting commentary. Yeah. It's almost like the warriors but on crack pretty much like that. That's how violent that's how dastardly these youth gangs can be. And I realized something on, on this reread, the last panel where it's like the overhead shot looking down on Bruce when he's still underneath the lamppost and the, the ring, the sphere of the light is kind of illuminating around them. I just realized the trash is falling in the same p- positions as his parents. Yep. Sure is. <sighs> so brilliant. So brilliant. This is this is another reason why you keep reading this book. You're finding out more things about it. And so we have another, we have more stories about horrific things. That the mutant gang has done as well as the heat is continuing to rise. And then we cut to the Arkham home for the emotionally troubled because there's nothing like rebranding. Oh God. And there's nothing, and there's nothing else like being freaking politically correct and having to make sure that, that, you know, not only just rebranding, but just the idea of, Oh, we don't want to call them the criminally insane. We need to call them the emotionally troubled. Because by changing the words, we change who they are. And you can just tell that Frank Miller's like, bullshit. Stop yeah. it. 
stop it. And see, and this is where it's really interesting because everyone wants to try to nail down like, oh, no, this book satirizes this, this, you know, into the political spectrum or it satirizes this into the political spectrum. And it's like, no, this is like South Park. Everyone gets their due in this book. And I really feel like that Walper, Dr. Walper, who in this book is the head of Arkham, uh, is the head of Arkham, is like, is sort of, is sort of, you know, Frank Miller's take on like the hippy dippy, oh, we just need to, we just need to all work it out. We just need to talk it out and everyone can get better. And I feel like Walper is like, Frank, like going, Really? You're working with these people, and that's the mentality you're going to take? I don't think so. No, I feel like he w- if he was going to describe Dr. Walper in a word, he'd probably say he's a quack. Yes, absolutely. Because he wears the T-shirts, and he's got the little, like, the little uh, buttons on his jacket. Like, you know, like, you know I-, I always consider buttons on jackets almost like bumper stickers on cars. And and I feel like you know, and that's the thing is always looking at what what shirt is Walpole wearing or what's his button say, and it's like okay, what kind of cheesy dippy thing are you going to be saying in this in this appearance of your character? And of course, the whole point is is that Walper totally thinks that thanks to a little psychiatric help and some plastic surgery that they've cured Two Face, that they've they've brought Harvey Dent back. And I love the fact that in the first the third panel of the page. They're already introducing the Joker. And that the Joker is here, but he's not here. And it's really interesting to watch the Joker. And every time he shows up, you're just like, it's like that ticking time bomb of, what's he doing? Why why is the Joker not being the Joker right now? And I always find that interesting. Because you could... That's the one thing about comic books, especially where you have time and you have, like, he, that Frank had carte blanche to create this. Joker is there for a purpose. And, like, by this point in the book, you're like, all right. And he's kind of comatose and, like, nobody kind of treats him seriously. He's like Chief from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Nobody considers him a threat anymore. But the audience knows that there's something really odd about him. Well, that's what makes the One Flew of the Cuckoo's Nest book so good is the fact that Chief narrates the story. So the fact is that you hear the entire story from Chief's perspective. It would be really interesting to get like a version of Dark Knight Returns that's like, what's Joker's internal monologue during all of this? That would be interesting. Oh, totally. And see all the kind of machinations and kind of what's been going on in his head. In the 10-year absence of Batman and what was his first thought other than the word darling is when Batman returns. Um, and so we have the, the next scene is where we have the news reporter again talking about Two-Face and his crimes. And Harvey Dent is shown out to the public saying, like, look at what we can do with a little psychiatric help and plastic surgery, like you mentioned. And he says, like, I don't think I can be... Forgive for my crimes, but I've just given me the chance. Commissioner Gordon's like, no, 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 no. Like, I've dealt with you way too many times in, in my career. I'm not trusting you to that. And we have Bruce Wayne saying he had sponsored the surgery for him and that he hopes for the best for Harvey Dent. And then following, we have the first flashback in the story where we see how Bruce with his parents still alive and how he discovered the cave for the first time. I know. I mean, don't you just love it every time you see the you know, 
the well scene or the cave scene or like all all the different interpretations of like when he finds that hole. And I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know when this started. Like falling down the hole into the cave. Like when is the first when is the first iteration of that? Because this was my first iteration. But I don't know historically what's the first iteration of a young Bruce falling in the hole and discovering the bat cave. Right. I mean, it's, it's, it's a far cry from, oh, a bat. That's what I should do. I shall become a bat. Oh, God. Yes. Thank you. Thank you for reminding me about Detective Comics 27. I appreciate it. Yes. Of course. There's no way that we were not going to get through this show without making reference to at least early days Batman. Oh, or was that even Detective 27? Was that Detective Comics 31 that actually had his origin in it? I think 31 because we because we don't know who Batman it, is until the very end. Yeah, yeah, right. It's 31. It's the or it's the origin. Yeah, that's exactly what that was. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Okay, you've just just throwing me for a loop here with that. I'm gonna I apologize. I'm gonna be sitting in my in my easy chair smoking my pipe and see a bat out my window and go. That's what I shall become. Yeah, I mean, like, I pulled into my driveway and see cats in my lawn, and I've never said, you know what? I shall become Catman. Um, and so when you're saying, like, this is your first experience of the cave and everything, my first experience of Batman, or Bruce Wayne falling into the cave was Batman Forever. Oh, that's, yeah, yeah, I remember that, with the giant puppet bat flying at him. Yeah, but I, I like I like Val Kilmer's narration during that scene. It's well done. It's well done, and you know he's also telling it to Nicole Kidman. You know there there could be worse things. Yeah, I mean he could be narrating it to Alfred yet again, and Alfred's like, oh god, not not this story. Like, yes, Master Bruce, yes, the big bat and everything. Um, and so we have the story of like the giant bat that's always well, that's haunted him, and it's always become a part of him, and then. This is happening in a nightmare, and then Bruce finds himself awake in the Batcave for the first time in years. And he's butt naked too, which is always weird. I was, I was, I had to admit that always kind of like weirds me out. That like, yeah, I'm in a dang cave, butt naked. All right, and, and it's so obvious based on Alfred's conversation that he's been sleepwalking, which is probably like probably terrifying. To try and get a sleepwalking Batman back to bed. Uh, but I will say this. Damn, boy looks good for 55. What can I say? Yeah, and I love how, uh, yeah, he's he's in incredible shape despite the fact of him being out of action. And I love how his mustache is gone, and he's shocked by that, that his he was in such a trance that he shaved the mustache off. Oh, no, he didn't shave the mustache off. Batman shaved the mustache off. Remember, he's not well. He is not a well man. And that's the Batman persona. I really feel like that that dream was... I still feel like the giant bat represents the Batman personality. And that was the... Because in the in that page, as the bat comes closer and basically envelops the panels to where the panels are in all black. And once again, you see the captions with the gray coloring, which is like the internal monologue of Batman. I mean, that was when that personality took over because that's when Bruce wakes up. And we get Bruce narration again, but that's when he's in the Batcave. And it's like, what am I doing down here? This is true. I, I, I can imagine probably straight razor, no shaving cream, just straight. Just did like that. Like, that's just how militaristic, and that's how almost like, as like, almost like a samurai. Like, it's just so perfect in the way it needed to be done. 
and so we hear about the that Harvey Dent has gone missing, and some of his goons, who are still friends years later, are playing a poker game, and then we see, presumably, Two-Face show up again. I know, looking like Hush, with the bandages wrapped around his head. Holy crap, he does! <laughs> I never put that together. You didn't? Really? Oh, yeah. No! Yeah, totally. Because, the, you gotta remember, in Hush, that's one of the red herrings, that Hush is Harvey Dent. Yeah, that was a third personality that's kind of sprung up from amongst the psychosis. And unlike unlike the Judge character we see in the new adventures of Batman the Animated Series. Exactly. And, oh my god. And then we get Batman watching TV, boozing it up. And then we get lines that, I will admit, I totally read this in the voice of Jeremy Irons because I remember these lines from Batman vs. Superman. Because yes. these lines were pulled directly from the book, like so many lines in that movie, which is probably one of the reasons I love Batman v Superman so much. It's like it's Dark Knight Returns on screen with entire sections of dialogue just lifted. I mean, unless we had an adaptation years down the line, this is the, that BVS is the closest thing that we have to a Dark Knight Returns live action adaptation. Oh, yeah, but I love that. That will be all, Master Bruce. I'm hoping that the next generation of wine of Wayne family shan't face an empty wine cellar, though given your social schedule of late, the prospects of there being a next generation. I mean, honestly, tell me you do not read that in Jeremy Irons' voice, because he totally says that in the movie. Oh, well, for sure. And I, and I love how, like, in book and movie, there's two different reactions. Like, in the book, is like, that'll be all, Alfred, Alfred, good night. Just, like, shooing him away. And I love how in BVS, is totally changing the topic. Like, he just hands... Alfred a coffee mug, like, yep, this is what I've been doing. Let's let's get off the topic now. Yeah, it's like, here's coffee, what's in the mail? Exactly. Mornings are for coffee and contemplation, Alfred. Coffee and contemplation. Um, and so Bruce Wayne watches a, a rerun of Mask of Zorro, and this is where we get into the next flashback. Sorry, I have to correct you. The Mark of Zorro. The Mask, of oh, Zorro, my... the Mask of Zorro is Antonio Banderas and Anthony Hopkins. My apologies. This is Tyrone This is Tyrone Power, which I actually own this movie in black and white. Now tell me you got it just because of this book. You better believe I did. Of course. Did. I would be lying. <laughs> I would be lying if I do not own the to tell you I do I own the Mark of Zorro just because it's the movie the Wings saw the night they were shot. Of course that's why I own it. Do you have your clock set to the hour when the Waynes were killed, too? Oh, no, I do not. But, you know, a man can dream. I can see you just getting a, an old grandfather clock at a yard sale and just to have it set up just for that now. I think it's like 1047. I think it's actually the time. Right. And then, like, 1048 or 1049 is when the birth of Batman begins or something like that. Oh, you know, you know what, what can I say? You know, I can dream from a man cave. You know, it's, <laughs> it's, it's in progress. And, of course. And so we have the... Death of the Wayne's at the hands of Joe Chill, and the opening to BVS pretty much. Almost shot for shot. Almost shot for shot, which is once again why I love Zack Snyder. Uh, I don't care what anyone else will say. That's my own personal, that's my hot take. I love Snyder, and I just love the fact that he, it, in film form, adapted, I mean, just, just looking at the, the panels. I mean, you've got a page of a comic that has, what, a 16-panel page. It's it's amazing, like, the moment, the moments that you see, including the ejecting of the shell casing 
falling down as you don't see Thomas get shot because you're kind of looking at Bruce the whole time, but you know that's what happened. And I love the little detail is that Thomas's fist clenches. Yes. And he took a proactive take on trying to stop um, Joe Chill. And it's something that's so different from, I think, like the three best adaptations of the scene in live action. Of course, we have Batman 89. We have Batman Begins and BVS. Uh, Batman Begins is almost like an accident that the gun went off. Yeah, yeah, because, like, Thomas is totally like, here, take the money. You're okay. You know, you know which is actually the whole point of what Rachel Ghoul says about him in the movie. It's like, he should have acted. And it's so funny, like, well, in this book, he did. And that's what kind of spooked him and caused him to get shot. Right, and that's kind of like, it plays into, like, one of the themes of BVS is that Bruce acts without thinking clearly in his prejudice to Superman is led them to that point where they, that he almost kills him. Yeah. It's just incredible. But, but once again, it's like, you know, it's like when people complain, do we have to see the Waynes get murdered again? But part of me goes, but they get murdered in a different way every time. It's like, it, you know, there, there's the simplistic idea of, yes, the Waynes get murdered. But there's such a different story being told every time the Waynes get murdered. And it's like, well, how how do they get murdered this time? And how does that influence the story going forward if you're willing to stop and pay attention? Totally. And then you have, like, an adaptation where you have a moment where that Bruce is a dick to his parents moments before they died, like in Batman Brave and the Bold, oh. where he gives them such attitude. Oh, that's that one's rough. Or, like, even what you get, or similar to what you get, like, in Batman Earth 1, the Jeff Johns graphic novel, where, like, Bruce is a punk. I'm trying to remember, like, because I've read that, because I've read that when, I, when it first came out in trade, like, I'm trying to remember, how does that, how does that play out? Oh, it's like he, like, he's throwing a fit and he, like, runs out of the theater or something, and then that's what, I don't know, it's been a while since I've read Volume 1 as well, but, you know, it's another one of those, like, Bruce's, it's another one of those Bruce's a dick stories. Right. I wish they kind of. I wish they would keep going on ongoing with that. But anyway, because I, I really enjoy. I really enjoy the, the aesthetic of it. I love the artist's choice of it. I love the suit. Um, I do question the fact that Riddler is able to get the drop on Batman with the shovel, but that's beside the point. Um, and so, in the Dark Knight Returns, Bruce runs out of the room and goes out on this patio, knocking over a statue as the as it starts to rain. As he sees the pearls fall again. And we end up back into the house, and he goes to the answer machine, and, just starts, and he hears from Clark Kent. He hears from Selina Kyle, and then he sees the only true friend that he really needs, a bat coming through the window. Yeah, and then, of course, what's happening here, which is just wonderful symbolism, is that you've had this tension building in Bruce, waiting for the Batman personality to rise, and it's just, and that is paralleled with the... The, the heat wave going through Gotham and the temperature and the temperature is literally and figuratively rising in Gotham to the point that there's finally a storm break. It starts raining. And what happens when it finally rains and there is re- and there is relief from the heat? It is the return of Batman there. I mean, he even wrote it to where the weather, the setting is a metaphor for Bruce's psychology. It is like almost like 
almost you could say like subtext 101 use the weather to illustrate a character's emotional states and you could say the dark knight rises in this moment you 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 could say that if i was gonna make a really terrible pun which i always do yes you do yes you do you should go you should go to pun jail that's all i have to say about that Oh, I mean, you're not going to be able to throw away the key. When, like, the sentence is not going to be too long. Anyway. Oh, God. Seriously. <laughs> um, and you don't have to apologize for being a Zack Snyder fan on this show. I have my I Heart ZS t-shirt on as we oh, speak. Oh, you are a good man. You are a good man. Uh, of course. And so we have the a woman coming home with, a, with groceries, and she's stopped by a random mugger who says, like, like, uh, like, hey, mommy, come close, and pulls a switchblade out. I'm sorry, on I her. never, I never read as a mugger. I saw that as a rapist. Like, that's where I thought this was going. That's also that's also possible because he's obviously not going for money because he could easily just held her up if he wanted to. Exactly. And then, of course, you've got the, you know, he's trying to like shove shove her into the the taxi cab, and you know, I just I just love the fact that like Batman. Totally, like, takes the guy out in the taxi cab and then takes the money away from the taxi driver that the the rapist, like, paid him for. It's just like, nope, you don't deserve this. You should not benefit from this. And I love that moment. It's like, I wonder, the the woman who's uh, presumably a prostitute and it's this this pimp that's doing it to her, I I guess you can ask her how she got those scars. It's probably from him. Oh, absolutely. So, yeah. Oh, and then, interesting enough, on the next page, we get our first introduction to Carrie Kelly, who, I I have to admit, took some warming up. I like Carrie now, but didn't didn't grab me immediately, especially my seven-year-old self when I I was younger. But I've come to appreciate the kind of character that Carrie is, especially as we read further on and we kind of learn more about her home life and, like, who her parents are and how it's incredible that she is who she is. Yeah. I mean, like she, she's the daughter of like kind of like two burnouts pretty much. Yes, exactly. I, I mean, it's obviously not is very, not is a not subtle jab at hippies when it comes to Carrie Kelly's parents. But this is when we get like almost a real proper introduction to the mutants at the arcade. And they, uh, they have like, and like how, like they say, chick, 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 and then and slice and dice. And things that become synonymous with the mutants, and especially with this book, and especially, and I love how we see the close-up of the batarangs between Bruce's fingers and throwing them, and it, like boom, ends up in, in the the mutant's arms. Another one getting thrown into the sign and blowing up, and just we're seeing glimpses of it. We're seeing he is teasing the audience because it's like obviously like like oh we know he's back. We're just waiting for his big reveal. And it, and we see uh, another story that's going on in progress of a bank that's that's being robbed, and two cars leave the scene with one police car choosing the the non jalopy to follow, believing that the the money's in that car, and that's when the police officer recognizes, oh, there's something in the sky, and this other line curved right in, that's ripped from this page is in place in the Dark Knight Rises. We're in for a show, kid. After the the, the first, the younger cop asks why he's slowing down. And then we get to the gigantic splash page in the return of Batman. Oh, and it's interesting because he's also like in the classic blue and gray costume, which if you've read this book enough, 
I don't think of the blue and gray with the yellow oval when I read this book. But that's what he starts off in in this book. And I have to admit, it's a little jarring every time because it's so classic looking that I don't expect it from this book. You know, every time I reread it. No, because he kind of goes on a journey. And like, this is obviously like, this is probably the last suit he wore before he retired. And then he modifies in his, as his, him as a person, as Batman changes throughout, so does his costume. It's another way of illustrating that. Yeah, because, because as, as the book gets disturbingly darker as it goes on, his costume becomes darker. He loses all the color. It, he, I mean, by the end of the book, it is black and gray. You know, before he puts the anti-Superman armor on. So, you know, you get the big... I mean, this is Neil Adams... This is Denny O'Neill, Neil Adams' Batman. Like, this is the Batman of the 70s. That's what this is that we're staring at right now. Oh, totally. And I love I, I love how this this... He questions, like, I should be in pain, and but I'm a man of 20, of 30, of 20 again. The the rain on my chest is a baptism. I'm born again. And wasn't that the name of the story arc of Daredevil that Frank Miller wrote? Yep. Born, uh, that, was the, that was another story arc. Like, after, after he did his, like, famous run, Born Again was, like, when he came back to Daredevil. Because that's actually the arc that season three of Daredevil is going to be inspired by. Oh really? Oh yeah, that's one with Karen and Page, and it, that's the one with Karen and Page and Kingpin finding out who uh, Daredevil is, and oh yeah, and that one was also drawn by uh, David Mazzucchelli, the same artist who drew uh, Batman Year One. And that was different because was it? Oh man, I'm trying to think of the artist who did the first run of Daredevil comics for Frank Miller. <sighs> Who was no, – was now you feel like totally – Not DiMaggio? No, no. No, 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 no. No, 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 Crap. Anyway, it will come to us later on. Um, and so Batman lands on top of the escaping car from the bank robbery. His cape um, fills the entire windshield, so they end up crashing. Batman dives off the car before it, it comes into a c- collision. Um, the goons go running into the warehouse. The police arrive, and it says, these men are mine. And the rookie wants to go in there and try and stop him. And the, the, the police officer who's been on the force for years is like, let him alone, kid. He's being patient with you. Or not not yet. <clears throat> oh, by the way, Frank Frank drew his Daredevil run. Oh, okay. Yeah. With Klaus oh. Jansen, who also does the inks for Dark Knight Returns. I mean, that is a, an amazing partnership, is, is, you know, the fact of how Frank Miller and Klaus – Klaus Jansen have have continued to work together even to DK three. Oh, it's 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 wonderful. It's weird that they're not brought up together as a pair as often as like people say. Oh, Stanley, Jack Kirby, Neil Adams, and Denny O'Neill, and you can say Snyder and Greg Capullo. But it's rare they say, oh, Frank Miller. It's usually Frank Miller as writer and artist. It's rarely is Klaus brought up in the same sentence or the same breath. Oh, but he should be. And once again, that documentary that's on the deluxe edition of the animated movie. That's also another one of those things where you get he's interviewed there too, and it's just amazing to go like, here's what Frank's pencils look like, and then to see if you don't understand what an inker does, because you know we go back to the old chasing Amy joke of you're a tracer. <laughs> I was just about to make and it. I want to go screw you, <laughs> screw you. 
but but you know watching watching that documentary and seeing what Klaus does to ink Frank's pencils really is a revelation of the artistry that goes into being an inker. But what I love about what I love about this scene is that you've seen it played out in Dark Knight Rises and you've seen it played out in BVS because when you've got when you've got those two cops saving the sec tra- the the uh, the the uh, human traffic uh, victims at the beginning, mm-hmm. it's that same thing. You got the older cop, the younger cop, the younger cops like going after Batman. The older cops like, what the hell are you doing? You know, it's the idea that the older cop knows what's up. It's like let the, let let the man work. Let let the man work. Which I also think is funny that those officers in BVS were named uh, Officer Mazzucchelli and Officer Rucka. That's that's a little tidbit if you didn't watch the credits. Didn't notice that. Yeah. And but also. Um... I also love that it is kind of like how the Martha rescue scene is where we have Batman coming through the floor and taking these guys out one at a time. Oh yeah, absolutely. And then, but I love the fact that he's like being Batman, but he complains about being old. It's like, damn, this, this, this was, this was easier 10 years ago. And I appreciate that, that on his first night out, not everything is going smoothly that he is freaking 55. This stuff is going to hurt. You know, the, the fact that he can't just pull himself up the grappling rope with his arms. He does actually have to wrap it around his leg to give himself a little bit more leverage to do the same things he used to do 10 years ago. Right. And it's, it's something kind of like even as I'm a, I am a, I am a younger person, but it's like, all right, like I can I could jump off this tree a little bit. But like at one like I jumped off a tree that I used to like uh, in my the woods near my house, and I jumped off and I landed. I'm like, huh, that landed. That land was a little bit harder than it used to be when I was a kid, when I was a child. And I'm like, oh no. And then just thoughts of my own my own age, my own mortality, just flashed through my mind. I'm like, oh. And then this is when I decided to reread this book. I'm like, yeah, I kind of feel you in that moment there, Batman. I I know how you feel. And then once again, during this entire sequence where he's fighting these guys in this like abandoned building. Once again, the captions are that gray color, so it's Batman who's talking. But this is one of my favorite lines is where he goes, there are seven, wor- there are seven working defenses from this position. Three of them disarm with minimal contact. Three of them kill. The other hurts. And then there's that awesome where like, the young rookie cop is like, you've crippled that man. And Batman just goes, he's young. He'll probably walk again. <laughs> I just love the whole, like, I don't give a shit. You know, no. I didn't kill him. That's what you get. Yeah, I mean, like, it's, it's um, I hate when people say like, "Well, Batman was too brutal in BVS." I'm just like, what? Like, what the know. hell? What? Have you played the Arkham games? Have you? No, like, those guys are not getting up. No, no. I've run over enough thugs in the Batmobile in Arkham and Arkham Knight. They are not walking away from that. Yeah, that's why I call bullshit on that game. Like, I'm sorry, Batman. I'm sure they're supposed to be shocked and they're zapped away from the car. I'm like, no, those men are dead. You have you have GTA'd most of the criminal population in Arkham Knight. Yeah. Oh, and let's not forget the which comes from Dark Knight Returns. The idea of the rubber bullets in the in the gun, the machine gun on the Batmobile. Oh yeah, We're, I'm gonna love it when we get to that in book two. Yeah, <laughs> rubber, rubber bullets. Honest. Honest. <laughs> <laughs> um. And so that's when Batman discovers that the thug had a two-faced coin on there. We cut to Lana Lang um, already championing Batman at this point. I know. That's very interesting. The, the one thing that I miss from the 
from the individual issue release is that in the collected edition of Darknet Returns, there's an introduction to the book written by Jimmy Olsen. Yes. That's done like a that's done like a newspaper clipping, which I don't have in front of me right now because I'm digitally looking at my uh my individual issue, but I know it's there in the in the trade collection. Yeah, Truth to Power by James Olsen. Ooh. But I just love the fact that Lana would be the one she'd be the talking head. She'd be the pundit, you know, that that's pro vigilante or pro the supers. And it immediately starts to set up a kind of a conflict that eventually kind of plays through with her combating verbally with so many naysayers on Batman's uh, actions in Gotham City that it's creating – that it's making it worse. And it's kind of making those people – give those people voices like – that people have had with Batman. Like, isn't he just creating his own villains? Isn't he just being his own worst enemy by – giving these people a platform to perform these kind of heinous acts on the people of Gotham. Well, and, and it's almost it, – it, and Frank almost points that out because it's not until the Joker watching the news hears that Batman is back that he finally kind of sl- snaps out of this catatonic state he's in. It's almost like when Batman disappeared, Joker had nothing to live for, and so he just kind of shut down into a type of hibernation. And then, you know, this is where you get kind of that weird, almost, I'm not sure if homoerotic is the word I'm looking for, but this, there's this weird symbiotic relationship, uh, especially the way that Miller draws Joker. Very, very, I think was it David Bowie-esque, sort of androgynous and, and just kind of like the effect that he uses the word darling to describe Batman. And it's like, oh, you're bad. And now that was something Michael Emerson did incredibly well as the voice of the Joker in the animated movie is that just that almost like shock and awe, that almost adoration of Batman. But there is a there's a hint of sensuality. Yes, absolutely. And he almost pulls like a Michael Myers where it's just one night and one event snaps and he goes back to right where he has to be. Yes, exactly. After years of being an institution. And so we hear the talking heads between uh, Lana Lang and I. I forget who this person is on the Point versus Point talk show and how these kind of allegations against Batman have already started. They're saying that, yeah, he did great things last night. However, what could this mean for the people of Gotham? We see uh, Gordon in his office trying to maintain everything while he's dealing with um, uh, the the man that uh, Batman roughed up the night before, and his attorney. This reminds me of in RoboCop, where it's like, like uh, I make an aggravated assault, I can make bail in cash now. Listen, pal, your client's a scumbag. You're a scumbag, and and scumbags see the 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 judge on Monday. When now get laughing boy out of here. When Reed is reading the riot act to that that criminal. Oh my God, I know, and and I just and I just. And I just love how Gordon couldn't give two shits. All he wants to do is find his matches to smoke his cigars. And it's like, are you done yet? Now get the hell out of my office. And, and, I, and I love how in the animated movie, like, the um, the criminal and the attorney kind of, like, blink when he says, like, yeah, just, yeah, you're fine. Get out of here. They're like, um, okay, did we get protection from Batman? Like, nah, no. 
And so we cut to um, Stately Way Manor, but obviously the infirmary is a red bat phone. Yes, it is a red bat phone. You better believe it. And 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 Batman's getting a massage. He, you know, the, the, another one of Alfred's amazing abilities. He is a masseuse and a chiropractor all wrapped into one. I mean, like, after that night, the night previous, he's probably all knotted up and probably all just like, he needs this. Otherwise, he's not getting up from that table. And I love how it's it's so silly because, like, like I say, the material of it, but seeing the, the this T-shirt or the shirt of the Batsuit that's coming out of the dryer or the washer, I should say, is just really funny to me. I don't know why. <laughs> What's the fact that Alfred's doing Batman's laundry? He he literally just threw the outfit into the washing machine. It's it's, it's just so it's it's so domestic about it. We never think about Alfred doing Batman's laundry. No, and he's not. And he, too bad he's not doing kung fu with the laundry putting up on the. Dry, oh no! The... Why? Why? No! <laughs> no, sir! You are not allowed. No, sir! <laughs> uh, uh, oh man! Even I though I will not, I, I will not give that much hate for Batman Forever. I actually enjoyed that one in theaters when I saw it when I was fourteen. You know, it's you know, Batman Robin. No, you hard pass. Batman Forever. Uh, I give you some slack. Yeah, I, I have no problem with Batman Forever. I, I get the hate. I'll, I'll never deny the fact that, yeah, it is silly and it deserves like, the criticism it, it deserves. I still get a lot of enjoyment out of it, but that's just me. Um, Batman and Robin, I think it's one of the greatest unintentional comedies ever made. And I laugh my butt off every time I watch it. Um, and so, next scene, we have the mutant leader in shadow and making an address to the, the public, and especially Commissioner Gordon. Very much like how Kane does that in RoboCop 2. No, very much so. Or eventually how Bane does it in The Dark Knight Rises. Ah, yeah, another, another point. I do find it funny, though, that we have like, the, the mutant design, the goggles, is very Jordy LaForge and very Cyclops. Cyclops yeah, I always think of Cyclops when I see that. Yeah. Yeah. I also love the fact that Batman just totally like busts into this guy's apartment, throws him through a window, and is... It, it is totally like, you just went through a window. You are bleeding to death. I also, I also kind of appreciate that fact because people seem to – we see in action movies all the time, people going through windows. It's like, you would be cut the hell up if you went through a window. You would be bleeding to death. And I love the fact that Batman's like – the guy's stuck through his window. It's jammed in probably like an artery. And Batman's like, talk. I'm the only one who can get you to the hospital before you bleed out. I I don't know I don't know what this says about me as a person, but I like my brutal Batman. I like my Batman who won't kill you, but boy will he make you think you're gonna die, and he will use that to your advantage as an interrogation tool. I don't think that makes me a a, a, a healthy person, but I like it in my Batman. I have to admit it. Well, actually, as a to all from all your listeners and your co hosts and like we've been wanting to say we we we're kind of concerned about you, Scott. You you're kind of scaring us. Uh, well, be scared. That's what I have to say. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so we cut to another, uh, not just a um, news report, but a man in the street interviews, which start in here. And so there is a gentleman here that makes a homophobic uh, slur at the end of his. Um, his interview and i love how the next one is a gentleman who's saying like yeah i think he's doing the right thing no i of course i don't live in the city <laughs> yeah yeah kind of the hypocrisy there of 
of someone who is commenting on something that they have absolutely no actual stake in whatsoever. No, not not at all. And then we have the big. We have a moment where we see um, Jim Gordon getting the the bat signal ready. We see Carrie Kelly in her home life, and obviously that whenever I kind of I can't help but hear it in the voices that they had in the anime movie, where it's just like such a cliche hippy dippy was like like obviously he's a fascist never heard of civil rights man and doesn't the tv just love him they all love him the marriage conscious died with the kennedys man which also kind of was was ripped into bbs when perry white says the american conscious died with with robert martin and john, john. yeah yeah but at least there at least perry said it with like some like I don't know, integrity. Unlike these guys who just sound like we are totally on something, watching the TV, paying absolutely no attention to our teenage daughter, who maybe we should be parental and be taken care of? I don't know. Yeah, it's just being very irresponsible. And then we see the bat signal in his full glory shining on a building. And we have Batman and Gordon on a rooftop talking about crime. Yes. I mean, you can't get more classic than this. Oh my god, it, it's it's fantastic. And then we go back to the Joker again, because once again, Frank Miller's playing the long game. Like, this story with Joker is not going to play out until book three. And it will even have repercussions in book four. But it's like, but it's just the seeds are there. Because this, while it was released as four separate issues, I truly do believe it's meant to be read as one book. Agreed. And... It, it, the, mo- the most impactful, I think, reading experience is if you sit down and read it like from beginning to end, like a long story. One might I mean, say like, like a novel. Ooh, ooh. Oh. <laughs> George Takai voice. Oh, oh my. my. <laughs> there's also another meme my buddies and I will use sometimes. Like there's a, a picture of Roger Moore in black and white where he's like got a martini glass and his eyes are looking off to the side. Whenever made like a really witty repertoire, it's like we'll send each other this Roger Moore face, and we'll just say <laughs> Roger Moore face <laughs> as response. Um, especially if it's James Bond related. Um, and so yeah, we introduced the Joker's uh, goon here, and what kind of bombs they're talking about. And so we then we see Batman with a gun. I know, and I totally didn't understand what that gun was when I was seven. And then when I was thirty, I was like, oh. It's basically a grappling gun. He just needs the power that a that a that a you know a high power rifle would give you to shoot it across two buildings. Kind of like how he used a rifle in BVS to shoot the tracker. You know? Yeah. Just saying. Okay. The, the, the only reason why, and I love how when that trailer dropped, like the first trailer we saw, we saw Batman with the rifle. Everybody lost their shit over, like, um. Why is Batman carrying a gun? It's like, and I've, I've seen this before. I have actually seen yeah. this before. It's okay. And I do I li- I like the fact that there is a story reason why it needed enough inertia to get from one side of the building to the other. We have the two attack helicopters coming in, and we have the few, the pellets that drop down onto Two Face's men. They're inducing fear on them as he, as they're all terrified as Batman unveils the bomb and sees how it's counting down regardless of the ransom uh, demands that uh, that two base is making and i love oh go on 
Oh, I was yawning. Sorry. Oh, okay. Uh, I'm sorry. I'm bored. <laughs> it's okay. Honestly, t- come on. Pick up the gimmick. Fast, you know, faster, more intense. Oh, as a filmmaker, that hurts that you use that <laughs> sentence. Because, that, that, because like, I've, because it's one thing, like, like describing something to my actors, never use that word, never use that phrase. And it's like, no, no, do not do that. And I've caught myself doing that. I always said, like, faster. And I'm like, I want you to be a little more propelling in this moment um then batman's like trying to disarm the bomb and i love how he he questions the fact that it was what was it oh i'm not i'm not up on this digital jobs and then he says i say a prayer when he's when he's when he's disarming it when he's trying to freeze the mechanism before it explodes I know. And then what I also love is that this then leads into the fact that he's, like, trying to get to the other helicopter, the other one of the Twin Towers. He's running the line. He gets shot. And I just love the logic that Frank Miller comes up with is why would a guy who dresses up like a bat and works at night, why would he have this giant yellow oval plastered on his chest? And the fact that Frank Miller takes the time to retcon it to say, well, because that's where he puts, you know, the Kevlar. That's where he puts the most reinforcement. So instead of these guys going for a headshot, they're going to shoot at the bright yellow target where I've got, like, the most bulletproofing ever. And I think it's also one of the first times I've actually thought about the idea that he actually is wearing armor underneath... Uh, the the costume because traditionally I mean in the movies we're so used to him always wearing armor but then in the comic books it always just seems like he's wearing a jumpsuit and this is the first idea that there's actually like bullet plating underneath all of that and I just love the logic of having the big damn yellow oval on his chest and it makes so much sense because I know if I was a supervillain in a gunfight with that man I would yell at my men shoot his head you morons oh yeah it, it's like it's like every James Bond movie where you're just like stop monologuing just shoot him in the head and you'd be you'd win somebody else was must have happened recently oh I'm trying to think what the hell oh no no that was um, that was a Star Wars Last Jedi never mind um about like subverting expectations. However, and so Two Faces, Two Face Hush is firing at Batman. Falls off the building. <laughs> Two Face Hush. Yeah, it's more dashes into his name. Uh, Two Face, uh, Two Two Dash Face Dash Hush. It's very, it's very annoying to type it out like that. Um, falls off the building. Batman repels, goes for him, grabs him out of the midair, and the momentum of the two of them flying towards the building goes diving through the window almost like um um when john mcclain jumps off the side of the building and he goes flying through the window after he shoots it open yippee exactly and luckily there's no um uh, uh fire extinguisher hose dragging him out and so i love i love this panel here where it's the it's from behind is it's behind um Two-Face looking at Batman and the light source is coming from outside and it's black and white and it's the yellow text on the screen uh, on the panel. And then we, we see what it's like, we think that like, Oh, he's that the entire time with two faces, like completely bandaged up. Like, Oh, he's done something to his face. No, his face is fine. But it's the scars that have spread mentally. 
Oh, just the idea that now instead of instead of half his face being Harvey and half his face being Two Face, in his mind all he sees is all Two Face. It's just it's incredible, and the same way that he then has Batman look into him, look into the glass, and all Batman sees when he looks into the reflection is the giant bat from the Bat Cave, and he calls it a reflection. Oh. Like they're the both of them, the both of them see the monster. They don't see the man. No, and I wonder if do you think it's how Harvey sees himself at that point? Oh, absolutely. I, mean, I feel like he even says it. I mean, his line is even uh, at least both sides match. And then the next panel is if his entire face is all scar tissue and two face. So. It's like he is still psychologically broken. All of Dr. Walper's bullcrap, you know, didn't work. And what happened is that, yes, the plastic surgeon fixed his face, but as far as Harvey's concerned, he's just now all Two-Face. He's not all Harvey. Right. And I love, like, the last panel is the uh, Batman holding. He's cradling Two-Face. He's cradling Harvey at that point because... Despite the atrocities that he's done as Two Face, that Harvey is still his friend, no matter what. Well, I think it also goes with the fact that you know he he's now that Batman is back. I think once again, it's like this is what we are. It it's like he he can understand how Harvey feels like he's all Two Face, the same way that Batman is basically seeing I, I'm I'm Batman. I'm not Bruce Wayne. I'm Batman. I, I feel like there is a there's a Bond and their sort of shared psychosis at that point. Agreed. And so that's when the first book comes to an end. And I know. What a weird place to end the book. Like, it it, it works as a, it, it works thematically to end there, but it's just one of those that you just feel like you just flip the page and you go, oh, that was the last page. Oh, okay. And, of course, I'm also used to reading the trade where I just keep on going. Right. But... Just reviewing it as as a as an issue itself, it's like, oh damn, that's that's the end of the book. Okay, I mean, it kind of goes back to like it's the end of a big action set piece. And I remember something that Roger Corman said about movies is that don't don't wear out your welcome. Monsters dead, end the movie quick. And so the the villain is defeated, and we have a little bit of a revelation about Batman and what he really is. And then it ends, and I just imagine, like, as readers currently at the time, how they must have felt, like, oh, wow, that's a weird way to end this story, not knowing that there was going to be... I, I wonder, was it aware, was the, was the public aware that this was going to be a four-part story, or was it just, this came out, then the next three just came out in... Well, it says book one on the cover. Okay. So, so I, they didn't know how many books, I suppose, but the the cover would tell you that you know this was not this was not the only one right and which i guess you i want to ask you this question how do you feel about that when you hear when you see that on a cover of a comic book if it's say if it's one of four specifically i don't have a feeling one way or the other it's like it's not like i'm opposed to miniseries it i will admit that it's like I will then judge a, a first issue uh, a little harsher 
It's like, okay, what did you accomplish in the first book? It's not like it's a monthly book where, like, you can have down issues and up issues. Like, if you get four issues, you you got to give me bang for my buck. And so I, you know, it's – I don't feel one way or the other except for that. That's like, okay, if this is – if what you're saying is this is 25% of the story – I'm hoping for 25% of the story. To be honest, usually most books like that, they start off great, and then they lose it at the end. So it's like, they give me a really great first issue. They probably even give me a really good second issue. The question is, can you pay it off with a really good third and fourth issue? Because I've read four-part books that, like, first issue was great, second issue was great, even the third issue was good, and then they just lose me on the fourth issue right i mean the most recent example i've had i've experienced that with is when um i was reading uh chuck dixon chuck dixon's run on robin tim drake robin and it's him versus the joker and it said part one of four and i'm like huh okay or if it was not that it was another story like in the trade paperback and I'm like okay i hope this is worth it I'm, i'd rather just be i'd rather not know and see if this like because some of the best comic books and end on cliffhangers because comic books are perpetual second acts of stories. Yeah, exactly. But I also, because I love novels, I like the idea of the plot structure of there's going to be a beginning, a middle, and an end. Like, I, I like that. I Sometimes the monthly structure can wear on me because it feels like the story never ends. And there's something about having exposition, rising action, climax, you know, falling action resolution, where you have that novel format of there is a there is there is a there is a plan for the story, and it's not just something's going to be introduced to artificially keep the story going on and on and on. Like where sometimes you get the book that you're like, okay, this series should have ended like six issues ago. Seriously, right? And and I I agree with you. I like to have stories that have beginning, middle, end. Doesn't mean it has to be told in that that linear order. It doesn't have to be, but I would like to know that the author knows how the story is going to end and is building towards that. And and as as a person who reads often, and there's like there's certain rules of way of schools of thought. I should say is that character is. People who write plot first, and then character comes next, and then this character and plot comes throughout of it. Which do you, which do you, kind of fall on? What comes first? What do you think is more important than the other? If the if you could choose one to be more important than the other, what's more important, plot or character? Oh, I, I, I don't know. I know that Aristotle would say plot because character, uh. You learn about characters through the plot. That's what Aristotle would say, because C.S. Lewis would talk about that, that you learn about a person based on their actions, so plot is what's chief. Um, I, to be honest, it depends on the medium, because I feel like there are certain mediums that's like, if I, like, I can watch a movie, and it'd be a character piece, and I can be okay. But I'm going to be honest, if I'm reading a book, I need plot. I need something that makes me want to flip to the next page. Because if there's nothing keeping me flipping the page, I lose interest. But yet a movie can be a little light on plot, but be heavy on character, and I'm a bit more forgiving about it. But I guess for me, it really does 
the story is what matters. I need something that keeps me going. I need that moving train to the end of the book. I think that's my answer. And I think it's like that's from Aristotle's poetics that where yes. that kind of idea comes from. It's because I've studied writing, I've studied screenwriting, and Aristotle's poetics like you don't get more classic than that. And and I do agree. I do feel like character comes out of plot. Like yes, you could have like this kind of major events happens, but it's those in between moments where characters shine. Like you think of a like you saying movie like more character based movie. I think of like Days and Confused. That's just 24 hours in some people's lives. There's no real plot to it. It's just kind of a moments that they're experiencing. And then there are, there's movies where it's like, okay, no, you think of a lot of Hitchcock movies. Like, no, that's a plot. And these people are, and whatever characters in it are functions of that. Even something as you see, almost like, almost like, I don't want to say innocuous or anything, but like, even like the trouble with Harry, where it's like, yeah, there's a dead body and there's people kind of dealing with it, and it's kind of the characters' interactions during it. But yeah, there is still a plot to it, and there's a structure adherent to it. I'm a big person on structure. That's something that I find very like important in my own writing. Like structure, like I always, like, I'll write out a log line and like what the story is in one sentence, and then structure happens next, and I find the character moments as I go through it, and so. With this, with Dark Knight Returns, and how this first story ends, like, yes, we have the return of the major events. We have the return of Batman. We have the defeat of Two-Face. And the setup of Joker and Carrie Kelly Robin. And so my question to you is now is, like, how do you think is this first story is now, as you've experienced so many Batman stories since your first experience as it as when you were a seven-year-old? I think it's just, I like it because it, I mean... The title says it all. I mean, the title for the first book is The Dark Knight Returns. That's what the story serves. It's the reemergence of Batman. It is the return of Batman. And I think when you cuz by the time you get to the 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 adventure at the end of the book, because that's another thing about each of these books is each book has its own villain. You know, it's Two-Face in book 1, it's Mutant Leader in book 2, it's Joker in book 3, it's Superman in book 4. Those are the villains of each piece. Um, in one story, but this book is the most classic, and I think that is structurally sound. You give us a weird world, some sort of dystopian future, but you also give us the most classic Batman that you're going to see ever in this novel. I mean... Because by the time he's in the mud pit fighting the mutant leader, and that's when because the costume changes in the next book, and then he's fighting Joker, and that just gets disturbing to the point where at the end of the fourth book he's freaking fighting Superman. I mean, you know that's when you get all the people who are like, oh, I thought they were best friends. Well, this is when that changed. So in the first book is when you get the most traditional Batman you're ever gonna get in this story. And I think it's cool because it's the first one. Get them hooked into your world. Get them hooked with something that's familiar to them. And then you can start subverting that as subsequent books come out. And I agree. And I love, like, as I mentioned before, you mentioned before with the, his suit is 70s Batman. Like, it's another way of integrating the audience with this tale. And that it's an Elseworlds story. You needed to, you can't. 
you can't jump in with the deconstruction right away. You could, it does do it a little bit, but you needed to ease them into it. I mean, on the most recent Holy Badcast that um, Andy and Mark Hughes were talking, that like they were kind of commenting on maybe there should have been a Batman or Superman movie in between Man of Steel and BVS. So the the feelings on the deconstruction of those characters in BVS may not have been so jarring. And I think that's where this book kind of, the book one succeeds. That it's like okay, it's table setting. It's his own adventure, but we set up the rules and the expectations of what these characters are going to be like going forward. Now, I'm going to take a, a cue from Lisa's I Love That Movie podcast and ask you a question. How do you pitch this first book to a new reader? Gosh. And how do you entice them to read it? That's so weird because I've never thought about pitching book one. I can pitch the entire thing, but I never thought about pitching the individual issue because it's really just Batman coming out of retirement and you know and there's a world without Batman Batman's gone and then Batman comes back baby and that's really all I can say about this first one because that's really all the first book is I think that goes back to the fact that I still feel like I treat this as a novel I just see this as chapter one of a four-chapter book. And so I don't think about... It's not like I would rip out chapters from a book and say, Here, read this chapter. No, I hand them the book. So, I don't know. That's so, that's a that's an interesting mm. thing. I've never thought about that before. The only reason I ask that is, like, imagine you pick this up on a Wednesday. You've read it overnight, and Thursday you're trying to pitch your friend to go pick it up before the next issue comes out, and like trying like how like what's your elevator pitch to try and entice them into doing this? Oh, I just feel like this is every dystopian superhero future book we've ever read is basically just them trying to do that character's version of the Dark Knight Returns. You know, I think of things like Spider Man Rain or you know, I've never read. Oh, well, this is gonna be a, this is gonna be a mission. I've never read Old Man Logan. I own it digitally now because I got it free from Amazon, but I've actually never read it. But I always feel like all those books are basically just Dark Knight Returns for that particular character, especially Spider Man Rain. Which, if you've never read that, there's an interesting book to to check out. It hmm. is Dark Knight Returns or Spider Man. Or you have like Green Arrow's Longbow Hunters, but that's not. But that's not a. But Longbow Hunters isn't. That's not a Dark Knight Returns. That's not an. That's not an old Ollie. That's more like a year. That's, I know it's not year one, but it's more like a reintroduction of the character. Not. It's a paradigm. Go it's on. not a reintroduction of the character. It's a reintroduction of the character. It's not a dystopian future of the character because the longbow hunters was just Mike Grell setting up his, this is green arrow. Now, you know, in, in, in this is the post crisis green arrow because the longbow hunters is basically just like the mini series. Uh, you know, it's kind of like the Battlestar Galactica 2003 mini series before the series starts in 2004. Like that's just the introduction into reading Mike Grell's run on green arrow. 
it's a paradigm shift. It is a paradigm shift. Yes, it is. For the other. And, and it definitely would influence the kind of storytelling that would happen. I'm talking, I'm like, maybe it's not like, it's like, um, like Old Man Ali or a deconstruction. It's kind of like, I guess the, maybe the tone and the intentions and the sincerity that he was treating the subject of Green Arrow going forward it's kind of like maybe aping off this is like to be less trick arrows like you won't see the punching bag the, the punching glove arrow coming out of the quiver in those kind of stories no but i would also say the same thing for something like when frank went and wrote batman year one and the idea of you know which that's what batman begins is it's basically batman year one and the idea of, no, we're going to tell a Batman story in a really crappy city. Like, you're going to recognize Gotham as 1970s New York. You know, the same, the same way that Longbow Hunters takes him out of, quote, Star City and then puts him in Seattle. You know, the idea of we're even going to put him in an actual city and not, you know, one of our fictitious DC cities. Right. And so, okay, we're going to start to wrap it up here. Your final thoughts on book one. Ah. <sighs> It's a great first book. It is, a, it is a great first book. I mean, if I had been lucky enough to be picking this up uh, when it was coming out, granted, I was four when this book was coming out. I mean, it was already disturbing enough reading this book when I was seven. Uh, I, I, would buy, I, I would have this ready to pick up book two. It's like I would be intrigued by this book, and um, I'd be ready to pick it up. It's, it's a great book. It's, it's, I mean, even individually, it's a great issue with so much. I mean, my God, how long have we been talking about just one chapter of this book? And yeah, we needed to, yeah, we need to do this in four parts because we're going to have a conversation like this for every book I can imagine, especially with the later books when there's even more to dive into. Yeah. I mean, like, it would like to be less than the introduction uh, part of it, but it'd be more like, all right, now we have, we really have to talk about every panel on this page right now. And there's 16. So like, we got to dive into it. And it was, I, I will tell a funny story when we get to episode two about like how I, it comes to that realization on a recent trip to, into New York city while reading this book. But, and I agree to what you said. It is a great introduction to Batman. It's a great reintroduction to this version and this iteration of Batman and setting up this world. And it kind of, it's, you, you're so curious of how this book ends. And you're like, you know, it's part, it says book one. Like, I wonder what's going to happen next. I mean, to the point when I was reading it, that I read it from cover to cover from the very first time I, re- I had this in my possession. So I really love this first uh, story. And if you made it this far and you haven't read the book, um, what the hell? Curious. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, You might as well pick it up. I mean, it's rather strange that you made it this far and you haven't read it yet. I will recommend that you should do that beforehand because we're going to spoil things. Sorry. It's an over 30 year old story. Like, please don't like, don't get, don't get shitty at us because we, we didn't give you a spoiler warning, but yeah. And so, Scott, if you want people to follow you on social media, where can they find you? What I want people to follow me? Are, are you serious? I, I don't if you want to, it's it's up to you. I mean, like if you want to deal with like nagging people on the internet. Oh well, <laughs> yeah, sell it to me. <laughs> you can follow me on Twitter at scottdc27. Um, you can also follow my podcast, the Suicide Squadcast, also on Twitter at Suicide Squadcast, where we talk weekly news about you know dc properties on film and television primarily focusing on the movies because 
you know, when the movies have news, dang, they got news. But so that's uh, that's where you'll hear me and my co-host. I have I know way too many Tims. You know, you're like Earth Two Tim. I already have Earth One Tim. My Tim is Tim Prime. That's that's our nomenclature for our for our universe. Crisis but, on Infinite Tims. Yeah, it's, it's Crisis on Infinite Tims. Oh dear God, that scares me. So, <laughs> but yeah, that's where you can find me on the social medias. I mean, to be fair, about naggy people on the internet, that's how you and I became friends in the first place, because I nagged you on Twitter. Yeah, I, I sometimes question my life choices every once in a while, I have to admit, but you know, say lovey. You know what? My dad says that to me all the time. I don't know what he means by that. Anyway. Uh, you keep using that word. I don't think it means what you think it means. <laughs> if you want to follow me on social media, you can follow me on Twitter at TimothyRooney2, my Instagram at TRooney1012. My other podcast, Please Rewind, as part of the RF4RM podcast network. Um, you can follow the Facebook page for this podcast, the Anything Goes uh, podcast on on Facebook, and you can follow my YouTube page uh, through the Lens Productions, where my we my latest video up there is actually commercial for Please Rewind, the retro show for real fans for real movies. We have a few shorts in the pipeline that you will be. I hope you will enjoy. I know Scott's not a horror fan, but I think he might enjoy the next one I actually have coming up. We'll see. And if you enjoyed this show, leave us a five-star and written review on iTunes because it kind of helps get the word out there. And I'll give you a shout-out on the next episode if you leave a review. And so, in closure, closing, I should say, uh, Scott, I want to thank you for taking time every night to uh, talk about Dark Knight Returns Part 1. I thank you for the opportunity to talk about Dark Knight Returns. I, I you know, twist my arm. That's all I got to say. Twist my arm. Yes. All right. And I hope everybody's enjoyed this episode. And stay tuned because there'll be more geek and pop culture coming from the show. And we'll talk to you soon.